Hi. <laughs> Hello there. I'm Sally McNally, the Irish midwife, and it's a great pleasure to be in a room full of strong women. I always love anybody who works with uh, birth. Uh, we attract a certain type of woman, don't we? Strong and wise and confident. Um, and um, I, as I look around the room, I know that some of you are aspiring midwives. Some of you are my own teachers in the back. Um, some of you are already on the path and uh, it's a great path. You're on the right path. Some of you work in different areas. We have postpartum uh, doulas. We have um, pelvic floor physiotherapists. And uh, I have some of my own patients here. Uh, so I am just in the right company tonight. And thank you for being here. Um, so a little disclosure. I have no disclosures to report. I deliver babies at CMH, and this talk is not related to my direct work, um, but it really is. Um, but <laughs> this presentation does not represent any of the facilities where I actually deliver babies. The World Health Organization is a great guide for us uh, in any kind of healthcare situation. Um, this is how they describe midwifery. It's the skilled, knowledgeable and compassionate care for childbearing women, newborn infants and families across the continuum throughout pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, birth, postpartum and the early weeks of life. It's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if midwives uh, are educated, licensed, regulated and integrated into interprofessional teams, then maternal deaths can be reduced by 41% stillbirths reduced by 26% and neonatal deaths can be reduced by 39%. So the work we do is really important. And we're so lucky here in uh, somewhere like Ventura, the women are so healthy um, they have insurance, most of our women. Um, we have, you just make a phone call and somebody's gonna run and help us or we can bring our patients to the hospital. Um, but you know, really where midwives are needed are out in other countries, in third world countries. Um, I have experience with that myself and I feel like the work that I did, it stays with me even to this day. I know that I helped, you know. And of course, the work that we do here in Ventura County, we're helping. Um, but if we could uh, get out there and, you know, maybe share some of our lives, some of our years, some of the even weeks, to go to these third world countries, we could really save lives. Uh, midwives could provide 80% essential maternity care around the world. And uh, there's 50 health related improvements, including in sexual and reproductive health. We do all that in the office, don't we girls? Um, lots of uh, STIs to be treated, lots of um, pre-pregnancy um, conversations, women who want to not get pregnant, women who uh, want to get pregnant. Uh, reproductive health is a very broad subject that midwives are very uh, interested in. Um, so, um, of course, immunization, that's uh, included here in this country, but also around the world. Breastfeeding rates are always higher uh, when women go to midwives because we're inclined to talk more about it and we spend more time with our patients and we educate. Um, sometimes I'm not saying anything bad about our obstetricians. We have great obstetricians and we need them and they do, you know, life-saving work. Um, but breastfeeding conversations might be very low on their uh, list of things to talk to their patients about. Um, so we, we, our patients get to know us. We try to get to see the same patients throughout their visits. Um, so they're more inclined to gain trust in us and they might tell us their, about their addictions or we get to see, you know, uh, different uh, characteristics that will lead us to have that right conversation. And we're inclined to be less judgmental. Um, we're not going to say, uh, you know, we're going to take your baby off you or lock you up or anything like that. We lead them to the help that they need. Um, so uh, diseases, uh, obesity in pregnancy, of course, we're going to have those conversations about diet um, and early childhood development is uh, definitely affected uh, when a woman is confident and can get the care that she needs that directly affects our babies. 
postpartum depression is a big deal. Um, it sometimes gets missed because uh, we're rushing in, rushing out. And it's, it, it's kind of like my pet peeve at the moment that um, I've, got, I've been so lucky that I can work as a midwife here. Um, but I sometimes am falling into a medical model and I, I find myself being, you know, pulled out of the midwife model. And uh, so every now and then I got to shake myself and say, stop it, get back in there. And you, you need to spend more time with the patients and uh, talk in a different way. And we're going to get into that now in a wee minute. So midwives are sexy, right? Because we're one of the oldest professions in the world. Our history is hard to define, though, because of racial, political, gender, and socio-economic suppression. Now, this is long little bit of history, but I think it's worth going through. It's kind of like our story, especially here in America. Um, so we know that back in the cave times and, uh, you know, back when we didn't have history books and things were being written down, there were midwives, right? They're being talked about in the Bible and um, in uh, ancient scripts. There's always a midwife. There's a midwife. Um, <laughs> but at the turn of the century, um, here in America, less than 5% of births were, were being happened, or being delivered in hospitals. They were all home births. And then in 1910, the Flexner Report, I know you've all probably heard of that, um, you student midwives, uh, the Flexner Report came out and it was advocated for the abolition of midwifery and underperforming medical schools. Um, and of course, these schools uh, were for black physicians and black midwives. Um, so that was, uh, of course, another form of white supremacy. Um, and in 1915, Dr. Joseph DeLee said that childbirth is a pathological process, and he stated that few escape damage. Um, and then in 1925, Mary Breckenridge founded the Frontier Nursing University in Kentucky. We'll talk a wee bit more about her in a minute. Um, and in 1930, 600 to 700 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. That was a lot. Lots of women were dying uh, due to childbirth. Um, moving on, 1939, 50% of the births had moved to the hospitals. In the 40s, then, American Association of the Nurse Midwives did not allow black members. Shame on us, right? And then ACNM was established in 1955. So more history. Um, in the 60s, we were getting kind of groovy. 97% of births occurred in the hospital. But then in the 70s, the US military began to train nurse midwives and only 9% of medical students were women. So um, then all our hippies um, came out and we started to deliver our babies at home. Um, and we had better farms and places to deliver the babies. So in 1973, ACNM, which is the American College of Nurse Midwives, uh, decided that the preferred site of birth was in the hospitals. 74 CNMs were authorized to practice here in California. In 80, ACNM updated its home birth statement to show approval for community birth. In 82, the Midwives Alliance of North America was established. In 93, licensed midwives authorized to practice in California. In 2013, then, the independent practice established for licensed midwives in California. And then 2020, independent practice established for CNMs in California. Now we're up to 2023. Thanks for coming on that wee journey. Um, now, midwifery care noted to be a key strategy towards reducing maternal mortality and morbidity. Community birth and hospital midwifery is on the rise. Yay! <laughs> um, so, we don't want to go back. So, um, midwives, I've borrowed some of these slides from um, the uh, CMQCC. That's another one of those uh, ones we have to try to remember. It stands for the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. And uh, they're doing great work out there to improve healthcare uh, in the maternity world. Um, these uh, few slides that I may show you with the statistics um, are taken from their midwifery integration uh, quality care.
So these pictures um, I actually borrowed from Karish, my little furry lad friend. Um, so uh, our midwives that uh, are the older midwives, our ancestor midwives, um, they came from everywhere, South America, Japan, Ireland, Italy, everywhere. And each country brought their own gifts and their own little tips and secrets and rubozos and various little things that uh, have brought us to what we have now as our evidence base that what works for women in labor, what works for women throughout pregnancy. Here's some important women, important midwives. Um, Margaret Charles Smith attended birth, of course, and she provided medical care to enslaved persons. She uh, also treated lashings and other wounds. And she often had to attend both as black and white women first. Um, and also Tempe Avery, we think of these women as spiritual healers. Uh, they were the grand midwives um, and uh, they were all usually black midwives. Um, and they attended up to 75% of births until the 40s. Laws, educational restrictions and campaigns against the profession led to the dismantling of their practice. Shame, shame, shame. And they were saving lives. So um, here is uh, Mary Breckenridge. This lady um, was the mother of midwifery in the US, but you know, that's what we call her because she started um, major uh, university called Frontier Nursing University, which some of us know well. I went there myself. Um, and it was the first accredited CNM master's program in the US. So we have to be thankful to her that she was able to break through and bring that type of education for us. But unfortunately, the uh, true part also of the story is that she was racist and she would not allow any of her students, um, if they were black, to come to the university. Shame again, right? So um, Mary died in 1965 and after that uh, the university started to admit black uh, students. And uh, we have good news now to report. Um, so we recognize the need to increase diversity within the nursing and midwifery professions. And in 2010, uh, set out to increase that enrollment in the underrepresented students. In 10 years now, since that, FNU's student of color population has increased from 9% to 27.8%. And 73.8% of students live in rural areas. 6% of our students are male and 27.8% are students of color. Getting there. Um, so, of course, midwives around the world, we know of Call the Midwives. Um, the other picture you saw, Mary Breckenridge on her horse, and I should talk about that, uh, the way they go to deliver was in people's homes. She went out on her horse and she trained midwives to do the same, and they went out into the Appalachian areas, and they often had to travel down the riverbeds on the horse, uh, go to the people's houses, and they bring their little scales and their little midwife bag and uh, did good work, you know. Uh, they did came up with some good statistics and. Uh, um, and we're very proud of all of that, that uh, being our history here. Uh, so um, the um, Call the Midwife show has, you know, brought a little bit of attention on midwives and uh, it's very well done. I've looked at quite a few of those shows and they're very, very well done. The picture on the other side are um, young midwives in Ireland in the 70s, 80s, and uh, Sally McNally's in there in the top row. Uh, but you can see, um, were flanked by the nuns on either side, kept in control, uh, very strict, very, um, very fun also. Huh? I'm um, the second one in our, from the top, um, the big grin, beside the tall one. Have I got my mouth? Let's see. There's Sally there. <laughs> But you can see us all there with our little nurses' caps and our fob watches. And we used to have the fetoscope and we'd, we were trained to listen with the fetoscope as we looked at our fob watch. Um, yes, I am that old. Um, but they were training us, you know, for 
uh, places like Africa. Um, they, the nuns who trained us were medical missionary midwives and nurses, and they had done fabulous work in places like Africa. And they had all started, you know, their own clinics over there, and um, they brought us great gifts um, in our training. Really, really great training. I really appreciate them. Um, uh, and uh, at the end of my training, it just coincided with the famine in Ethiopia. And I was determined I was going to Ethiopia. I was going to save the world. You know, you get that feeling when you're a student midwife, like, ah, I can do this. So um, I, there was one uh, visa for Ethiopia for our group. And there was a little nun in our group. And that's her sitting in the front. And uh, this little girl here, she got the visa because um, she had good religion <laughs> and uh, she wasn't going to lose her soul over there in the heathen <laughs> country. Um, so I was kind of mad that I didn't get to, to go. And um, poor girl, you know, she did go. She thought she was going to go and deliver babies and help moms breastfeed and stuff. But her job was to stand on, on the edge of this big, huge valley and walk through and uh, pick out the people who would live if they were fed. So of course she came back deeply depressed and uh, so I'm kind of glad I don't have that in my memory bank. Um, I went a different road because of that. Um, I, I had the feeling I wanted to go, so I went to Saudi Arabia, a different third world type country, um, but a place that I could really use the gifts of midwifery. More about that in a wee bit. Um, but uh, so when we think of a midwife, why, why would we be thinking we're any different to, you know, what a doctor does? Well, we do a lot of the same work um, in delivering our babies, but we do it a different way. So we think of a medical model and a midwifery model. And the medical model is technological and the midwifery model is more holistic. And we have to keep that, girls. We have to hold on to that. That's our true gift for women, uh, our people who are birthing. So in the medical model, um, sometimes they view the body as a machine, uh, kind of like a separation of mind and body. Uh, we honor the mind-body connection as midwives. In the medical um, model, the pregnancy and the birth are viewed as a disease or you know a problem. They're, they're viewed as like, where's the negative in the situation? We see it as normal. Um, we look at the woman having a normal physiological event. Um, sometimes a doctor will look at a woman and think, oh, pregnancy, it's a risky thing, right? She's uh, at risk. But we see it as a powerful feminine cycle. Um, so in the medical model, pregnancy and birth are dangerous conditions. So we have to use technology. We have to break out all our procedures. Patients' labors are managed. Um, sometimes babies and moms are separated and uh, babies must be put under warmers and lights and slapped and all of that. Um, in our model, we have to keep it safe, girls. It's our secret and it's our gift. Um, we do woman-centered care, person-centered care, family-centered care, personalized care, and we recognize the importance of the mother-baby dyad. We try to keep them together. Uh, the medical model uh, views childbirth as danger. Birth must take place in a hospital where we can monitor every contraction. Um, and uh, in the midwifery model, we view childbirth as a normal physiological process, recognize the safety of birth in all settings, home, birth center, and hospital. In the medical model, uh, the technology is viewed as superior and it often leads to the cascade of interventions. So we make problems for ourselves in, in the hospital sometimes. Um, so women's ability to give birth viewed as superior for us midwives, and we honor the power of women in birth. Sometimes um, I, I, I look at a woman and, and she's like a goddess, you know, like standing strong up on the bed, holding the squat bar, you know, or. Her legs are wide open and she's got all power, you know. Her nostrils are dilated, she's sweating, she's taking the deepest breaths, and she's all powerful. I don't want to, you know, take that away from her. I want to witness it and tell her about it afterwards. Um, 
So the cascade of events, for those of you who may not know what that is, sometimes in a hospital setting, um, say a woman comes in for an induction, the induction might take a long time. Maybe we put a medicine in for 12 hours and then we put a medicine in for another 12 hours, that's 24 hours. Then her membrane might be ruptured and we might give her pitocin to make her contract and this might be another 12, 24 hours and she'd start to get exhausted now and uh, she ends up maybe getting an epidural and to get the epidural we have to give her loads of IV fluids so that her blood pressure won't drop and then we wash away all her beautiful oxytocin that was making her contract and then sometimes after an epidural her blood pressure drops and her baby follows with a deceleration and then we rush in there like it's a big emergency we shove in there our our fetal monitors, internal monitors. We give her more IV fluids and we wash away any trace of her oxytocin. And then we manage the labor, right? We start giving pitocin and, you know, saying, oh, look at the clock and uh, such a long labor. And we can only give you another three hours. And now she starts to produce all of these stress hormones and the stress hormones block her endorphins and block her, her own oxytocin and she gets lost in this cascade of interventions and she falls into a web that sometimes can end into a C-section and often does. Sad story, isn't it? <laughs> but it doesn't always happen because sometimes there's a midwife there that says, let's give her another few hours or let's change her position or let's get her in the shower or let's talk to her and see what is she afraid of and how can we help her, you know, to bring back the endorphins. Well, there's a lot we can do. So we have different types of midwives, um, but we're all doing the same sacred work. Um, there's traditional midwives out there that we don't know too much about. They, you know, help women because they've made a pact together. Uh, they may have no training or maybe they've, you know, been handed down gifts of midwifery through family or, you know, just by being with each other um, and we call them traditional midwives we are scared of them you know um, because we, we we think you know what are they doing out there you know we can't control them um, but I'm sure they're full of love and kindness um, and trying to do their best we want to include all the midwives and that's really what this talk for me is all about how can we all get together and serve you know women and birthing people in the right way. Then of course our grand midwives, sometimes known as granny midwives. Um, there's not many anymore and there's nobody practicing in that way that I know of anymore. Um, certified professional midwives, um, that we have some in the room with us, yay. Um, and licensed midwives, licensed by the state where they work. Certified midwives, um, they usually have a master's and they're uh, certified through the American College of Nurse Midwives, but they're not required to be an RN. And then there's the certified nurse midwives like myself. They will get an RN and then a master's level education. But it doesn't mean that we can keep a, a perineum intact any better than maybe the, the midwives that we don't know about, right? Um, so we need to gather up all of our gifts and bring the best that we have. Uh, so uh, the two pathways for a certified professional midwife are to get a portfolio evaluation process pathway. Um, it's an um, apprenticeship program. Oh no, I'm off to you. Um, so no degree or diploma is required. The student must find a midwife preceptor who's nationally certified or state licensed. Um, or the other way would be to get an accredited formal education pathway. And for this pathway, a high school diploma from an accredited state or private school is required for admission to a midwifery school. And then um, an attainment of clinical skills must meet the core competencies developed by the Midwife Alliance of North America. Clinical education must occur under supervision of a midwife who must be nationally certified, legally recognized, and who has practiced for at least three years and attended 50 out-of-hospital births. 
clinical skills include management of prenatal, birth and postpartum care for women and newborns. So a CPM is a certified professional midwife, licensed and trained in midwifery only. CPMs can only deliver in out-of-hospital settings, homes or birth centres. They do not require physician oversight. That's nice. <laughs> the rest of us are all, can I do this? <coughs> CPMs are trained by other midwives and usually also attend accredited schools. The licensure requires that uh, PEP or portfolio evaluation process. And in some cases, apprenticeship and the PEP is adequate for a license. So it's really nice. They look at what is her experience. Could she be one of those midwives who will, you know, is helping deliver thousands of babies maybe out there? Uh, now we can bring them, get them the proper education and license, and um, then they can, you know, safely deliver the babies in homes or in birth centres. A CPM is a national certification and an LM is a state certification. In order to gain a certification and license in California, licensed midwives sit for a seven-hour uh, NARM examination and the midwife can have both a CPM certification and an LM one. Certified nurse midwives take a bit of a different route. Um, we're licensed RNs, master's degree in nursing, complete accredited nurse midwifery education program, and we pass a national certification examination. CNMs may practice legally in every US, US jurisdiction, whereas um, CPMs and LMs cannot. Uh, there's only certain states that will allow them. So a CNM can do certain things uh, independently. Uh, they, we independently manage uh, women's uh, health, um, throughout their pregnancy and birth and postpartum. Uh, we provide family planning and contraception. We practice within a healthcare setting, usually a hospital, uh, though there some midwives will deliver at home and in uh, birth centres. We consult, collaborate and refer. Doesn't it make us sound very important? <laughs> We're just, can I do this? So um, they deliver in hospitals, of course, uh, mostly. Um, gynecology care from puberty to menopause and beyond and of course we have prescriptive um, <laughs> we have prescriptive ability um, uh, so all midwives have little tricks in their bag right this is one of my little tricks for breach so if you come to me and you're pregnant and your baby's not turned by 34 weeks I'm probably going to do this with you so education for CNM uh, it's long and uh, our community is in the, uh, is really our classroom um, we have to use our community and find a midwife to help us get our experience and that's the problem where do we get a preceptor um, that's why we need more midwives guys uh, we must be prepared to help each other reach down and pull a sister up like these two in the back Diane and Roseanne they gave me a pull-up when I needed it. Thank you, thank you so much. And they're two of my preceptors, and I'm really honored that you're here. And so in our education, this is a list of the didactic courses that we do. And they're hard, each one has a, their own type of exams, lots of um, sleepless nights, uh, missing family, but we can do all of this online remotely. There are uh, courses around the country that you can actually attend class for these. Um, and then uh, these are the clinical hours. We, we're looking for 675 clinical hours. So do you think you could take that away from your family and uh, get out there into your community and find a preceptor? You have four or five children. Um, I, it's a commitment, it really is. And often it's way more than the 675 hours. You have to find uh, all of these. You, you need like 40 births, and that includes 40 um, uh, postpartum visits, baby vis uh, assessments, um, breastfeeding support, um, and then all of the other stuff that goes along with women's health, including the menopause, the gynae, um, the preconception visits. It's so interesting, it's so wonderful. And when you get to this part, you get really excited about it all. You get to do paps. 
learn how to put in IED. Um, so uh, is it difficult uh, to do this type of training? Um, yes, it's very hard. Uh, you have to have a calling and a commitment and uh, you have to stay the course and not give up, Sarah. Um, <laughs> so you might have to travel out of state. Um, you might have multiple preceptors, multiple sites and hospitals and um, hopefully birth centres too. You want to see how it's done in a birth centre with CPMs as well. And you might end up being uh, a lot more time. And of course, it's expensive. It, it could be 500 or more per credit, up to 80 credits, that's $40,000. Um, and of course, that's not including your books and your travel and uh, time away from work. And it, it, it gets up there. Right? Um, but what is the price for not following your calling, following your dharma? Um, if, if there's a little midwife inside you, listen to her. Um, women need you. Um, and there's, you know, old midwives like us out here ready to precept you and help you if we can in any way. And then you get all happy. You get spontaneous joy when you reach your, your dreams. Um, so uh, our scope of practice, right, we deal with low-risk patients low-risk pregnancy. It's got to be just one baby, but that's a lie, isn't it? We just delivered twins here recently. Yeah, we deliver vaginal twins, and there she is. Yeah, great. Um, she's a beautiful patient of mine. Um, she had a beautiful vaginal twin delivery. I hope you don't mind me telling you the story. <laughs> just just uh, re very recently. Um, so uh, there is there has, must be a cephalic presentation in your world, that would be cephalic. In mine, it's cephalic. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully it stays head down. So that means head down throughout the labor. And the gestational age of your baby uh, must be somewhere between 37 and 42 weeks. Um, before that, it's premature. And after that, it's post eight. So in a case like that, we could still deliver. But we must now include um, the obstetrician and have them overseeing, uh, usually from a room somewhere at the end of the corridor. Um, so our labor must be spontaneous or induced, and the patient has no pre-existing disease or condition that adversely affects the pregnancy, and that the CNM is not qualified to independently address per the core competencies for basic midwifery practice adopted by ACNM. Um, so, um, just recently, uh, uh, California Governor Newsom signed Senate Bill 1237, broadening our certified nurse midwife scope of practice, among other changes to the Practice Act and other sections of the Business and Professions Code. And uh, the change that happened is that um, we can open our own practices now. Um, so midwives can, you know, they don't have to have a doctor overseeing them. Um, so we're finally catching up with you girls. Um, of course, most of us that are in practice, we're old, um, coming towards the end of our career. Um, but we want to try and help the ones coming behind us because we envision, for me, of course, I envision a midwife for every woman. Um, and that's what we're looking for, but we need more midwives. And so the education training for California midwives, uh, just a little snapshot just to uh, remember that we have separate um, boards where we have to uh, get certified through. Um, but for, for both paths, it takes a lot of education, lots of deliveries, lots of uh, courage to get in there and uh, to do your first delivery. Somebody said they had, what, how many? Six? Um, so if we'd increase access to midwifery care, uh, it's going to be correlated with improved outcomes for families. Increased breastfeeding, reduced interventions, increased vaginal deliveries, and VBACs. VBACs means vaginal birth after C-section. And uh, lower neonatal deaths. Um, so we must talk about race and ethnicity and our disparities. 
uh, in this in this type of um, healthcare. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, black women die in the perinatal period three to four times the rate of white women. The maternal mortality rate for black women has increased from 37 deaths per 100,000 live births to 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births from 2018 to 2020. So what are we doing wrong? Right. We have to look at that. We should be, our numbers should be getting better, going in the opposite direction. Um, so here is another um, uh, view of a disparity. Um, this is cesarean section rates. Um, and of course, NTSV will stand for Nully Paris, which is her first pregnancy, first baby, a term, singleton, and vertex. Vertex is head down. Um, so that top line is probably very important. That is the brownish line, and that shows us our uh, black uh, patients. Um, our goal was to get this like to uh, 20 percent or 19 percent. Uh, for for women of um, color, it's still way up there. Uh, I believe that's like 27 percent women uh, are getting C-sections for their first baby and um, where our white sisters um, somehow were down at 21 percent what are we doing why is there such a disparity this is very important so what's happening in california at, at the micro macro level and uh, we're trying to integrate midwives into every part of healthcare. and uh, there's state funding now for midwifery education there's growth of community midwives uh, for the black, indigenous, and people of color providers. There's advocacy for equal reimbursement and contracting, so important. We can't work for free. We, we need our providers, our midwives, our lay midwives um, to be reimbursed. Uh, so we're trying to get Medi-Cal and Medicare uh, to get on board, and I think that's coming. Um, we're amending arbitrary state laws that restrict access to midwives. And the rise of midwifery advocacy by community organizations and policymakers like us. Um, California is a reproductive freedom state embracing patient choice. But this is also happening in California. Few active endeavors to improve collaboration and transfer. Um, and now what we're talking about there is if, uh, if a, a CPM is at home trying to deliver a baby and um, it, it, like some problem pops up and she needs to now transfer the patient to the hospital and um, we have very poor interaction still to this day between the hospital staff the doctors on call or the midwife that could be on call sometimes and um, so we need to have policies for that and respectful policies hospital midwifery is elevated above community midwifery even though we're doing the same work um, we don't like that. Commercial payers won't cover community birth or midwifery care. Disrespectful transfer of care for home births. I've spoken to some of your midwives and you tell me, you know, um, that nurse was so rude when I brought my patient in. It was just, um, she was acting like I was doing something wrong. And, and this is terrible. You know, we have to respect each other and our patients' choices. There's a dearth of available training sites for midwives. We need more training sites. Utilization of midwives as physician extenders, but not valuing the midwifery mole. I'm falling into that even now. Um, I, I'm getting all excited about a hospitalist program that's opening up at CMH, and I'm hoping to be one of the mavericks that gets in there and um, works as a midwife in the hospital. Um, it's a really big deal for us, um, but we have to protect uh, our midwifery model and not just be an extension of the doctor. How are we going to do that, girls? We have to figure it out together. Um, so we don't have readily accessible midwifery outcomes data. Um, it's a little scattered. Um, I spent a long time going into you know, numbers and getting lost um, because it's some, sometimes so unclear. Um, who's doing the deliveries and where. State laws and other regulations that prevent patient choice in childbirth 
um, it's like rules that prevent women from having vaginal birth out of hospital, vaginal birth after section in a, in a, um, a hospital or in a home. Uh, unable to obtain medical staff membership and admission privileges. So all of this reduced uh, size of California maternity care workforce, reduced or eliminated patient choice for pregnant and birthing Californians, decreases safety and quality of maternity care equals to poorer outcomes, increases the medical intervention, significant cost to the state and consumers. Ultimately, the effects are carried mainly by the black, indigenous and um, people of colour patients and the socially economic disadvantaged and geographically isolated. Um, so for the nerds in the room, I know some of you love uh, Jana, here's this is for you. <laughs> um, so uh, if you look at the, uh, just 2017, uh, these are uh, the annual births here in California and who delivered them. This is the best chart that I could find. Um, so doctor of medicine, usually an obstetrician, um, would have delivered 386,000 or more. Whereas um, the other types of doctors like family practice doctors would have delivered about 27,000. Um, nurse midwives, us girls in the hospital, 49,000. Um, so we're doing pretty good, but uh, the licensed midwives only 2,908. Other, that's the, the midwives we, we can't really identify out there, or paramedics who deliver um, in the you know, ambulances, um, they take up about 4,000. And then other unknown babies that show up, um, about 394. And that's in 2017, and the population is growing. So, of course, it's different now, five years later. This is a very interesting one. It's midwifery care around the world. So the, um, the brown bar is midwives uh, deliveries per 1,000 live births. And the bluey one is obstetricians. Um, so you can see Canada and the US, um, the obstetricians deliver more than the midwives. But come to the Netherlands, look how good the Netherlands are. And France, ooh, they love the midwives in France. And keep going down along the line in places like New Zealand and, of course, Europe. We love midwives in Europe. And all the way out there to Australia. Australia's really doing great things with birth. And they're all over our hypnobirthing. Um, and uh, they, they love to uh, do beautiful natural births. And so... Um, that I, I find that like intriguing um, that when we come to the US um, we're delivering the least amount. Um, so midwifery around the world, if you want to look at it from a different view, in Japan they have 25,000 midwives and only 8,000 OBs. In the UK they have 31,000 midwives and 6,000 OBs. Germany, 24,000 midwives, 4,000 OBs. The US, we only have 12,000 CNMs, and we're huge here in America. 200 CMs, I think that is wrong. I'm pretty sure it's more than that. Um, 2,400 uh, uh, certified um, uh, professional midwives. But look at 43,000 OBs. In Canada, they've 1,900 midwives and 2,000 OBs. So they're starting to even it up a little bit. Um, the US has 4 million births per year, and 9% 9, 9 of them are attended by CNMs or CMs, and less than 1% by CPMs. Here's another chart for Jana. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, this chart is very long. I couldn't fit it all in, but you can see the trend. Um, it's the maternal mortality rates worldwide for 2020 so it's pretty um, uh, recent per 100,000 live births so Mexico had 54 um, deaths um, United States had 23.8 but when you scroll all the way down to the part where you can't see places like the Netherlands that's 2 2.5 and they're of course they cherish their midwifery care um, more racial health disparity, black birthing people are the least likely to be listened to in labour. 
In California, they're four to six times more likely to die from complications related to pregnancy and childbirth than people in all other racial ethnic groups. Black birthing people are two and a half times more likely than white people to experience a severe maternal complication. And although black people represent only 5% of California's birthing population, they account for 20% of the state's maternal deaths. We need more midwives and we need more black midwives. Um, so benefits of medical care. If you have a midwife, you're more likely to have a spontaneous vaginal birth, trial of labor after cesarean, or a vaginal birth after cesarean, you're more likely to breastfeed and breastfeed for longer periods of time. Uh, your patients uh, usually feel confident and in control. Um, and of course, they're going to get patient-centered care and midwives cost less. Um, uh, you're less likely to have a cesarean section, uh, a forceps or a vacuum delivery. You're less likely to be induced because you're patient patient with mother nature um, you're very less likely to have an episiotomy what on earth is an episiotomy um, uh, you're less likely to have an epidural or perineal lacerations or continuous monitoring or any kind of pain medication and of course your baby benefits babies less likely to go to the NICU um, so um, midwifery philosophy has three elements it doesn't matter what kind of a midwife we are um, patient-centered care, therapeutic use of human presence. We gotta be there, we gotta talk to them, we gotta touch them, high touch, low tech. Non-intervention unless necessary for the health and well-being of pregnant persons and or the fetus. It's so hard. We know that the anesthesiologist is at the, at the desk. Um, if she could just have an epidural and go to sleep, then maybe you could go to sleep. Or if you could just rupture her membrane, you could deliver that baby in the next two hours and go home and have some breakfast before you go to the office. These are the thoughts we have, um, I'm being honest, but it's not the midwife model. We have to keep pulling ourselves back and sit on our hands. Um, so um, I like to think of women as warriors. I do a lot of warrior yoga poses in prenatal yoga. Um, and uh, I, I trust women um, that they know what's going on in their bodies and they can explain it to me if I just stop talking long enough to let them talk, if I can just listen. Um, so these, are, of course, are two of my own patients, um, two warriors. Um, here's another little warrior, um, and I liked what she put on her Instagram. She said, this is also my favorite photo from Labour. Labour's a good thing, right? She's enjoying it. I love the love and determination in Zach's eyes as he applies counter pressure, and the calm, loving presence of Sally McNally and the peace on my face, knowing that all the pain will be gone soon. That's what she wrote there. And of course, our patients are not just the women, they're the babies, right? Um, when we get to examine our babies and uh, we get a little time with them to develop that little bit of a relationship um, and hopefully they, they come back to the office uh, for the postpartum visits and we get to have a little cuddle and that's what I'm doing there, getting my little baby fix. Um, some of the babies are so darling and it, if I had ovaries, I'd ovulate, but I don't have any anymore. <coughs> oh, look, it's, it's uh, middle-aged white men. I don't know what they're doing. <coughs> what could they be doing? <laughs> oh, they're all so sweet. So sweet, so nice. Let's, let's move along now. <laughs> um, so um, I thought this was cute. Mary, exhausted, having just gotten Jesus to sleep, is approached by a young man who thinks to himself, what this girl needs is a drum solo. <coughs> <laughs> and uh, these pictures, um, you know, aren't we still doing some of this? Doesn't this remind you of the work that we sometimes do? Um, sometimes we have uh, the partner up there on the bed behind um, supporting her, and we might be holding legs or hands. Somebody might be kneeling on the floor. Um, and then this second picture, 
beakers know what they're doing, don't they? They've got a rebozo. They have something for her to hang. And uh, her face looks serene. It looks, you know, happy. Um, so these, of course, are very ancient pictures. Um, but we're still doing all of these same, same methods. Uh, so I did spend some time in Saudi Arabia under the veil myself. Uh, spent five years working as a midwife over there. Uh, and I love this picture um, because it, it reminds me of the important work we still have to do. Um, there was so much we could do over there. Um, I, I used to uh, sneak women packets of contraception when they were going home. Uh, they weren't allowed to have contraception. They, they had to have as many children as their little body could uh, have. I delivered one woman who was, I believe, her 18th baby. Um, and she was an old lady, you know, she was tired. Uh, her hemoglobin was like six. She was exhausted. It was really sad. Um, but that was her life, you know. But I was happy that I was there, that I could, you know, give her contraception. Um, so um, I, I did come across like lots of situations. And one where I, I really remember was um, where a lot of the women that I delivered uh, were coming from um, Sudanese destination and uh, Ethiopian. Um, they were tribes that had come to Saudi Arabia, sometimes brought as slaves, um, but they um, found themselves now as Saudi nationals uh, throughout the ages. But they brought, of course, their traditions. And one of their traditions was female circumcision. So when we're we were delivering some of these patients, their poor bodies were all fibroid um, because they were cut away, the labia was cut away, and then it was sutured back. So there was just like a little tight fibroid hole. Sometimes it would cover even the urethra where the urine would come out through her vagina. It was terrible. And sometimes I would have to do two episiotomies to get that child out because it had no stretching capability. And then the women would say, plead with me, please put it back exactly the way it was because he would get another wife, you know, if it wasn't pleasurable. And I saw, you know, 14-year-old brides coming in and two I saw coming in bleeding to death on their wedding night because, of course, he couldn't have sex with her because the circumcision would be so tight that he would just get out a little razor blade and do his own episiotomy. Um, so um, it really hurt every cell in my being, every particle of femininity that I have to have to deal with this. To see it was hurting me, so I could just imagine the poor women and what they felt. And they were they like this under the veil, but it wasn't even a pretty blue color like this. It was just black, black color. So I took it upon myself to uh, find the tribes that were in the desert where these families were mostly coming from. And I got permission, you know, from, um, from the people who ran the hospital, which were the Saudi military. And they sent me out into the desert uh, with two soldiers and a translator. And I brought with me some uh, of my medical books with pictures of what um, vaginas should look like. It's beautiful flowers, right? Um, so I thought, I'm going to show them and uh, I'm going to tell them that they've got to stop doing this circumcision. So uh, I was brought uh, to this Bedouin uh, area where there had a huge big camp. And of course, they had the elders and the chief of the, the camp. And I was walked in. And of course, over there, we were trained not to give eye contact to men. You had to look at the ground. Um, and uh, so I, I knelt on the floor in front of this man who was sitting a little higher than me. And I started to open my books. And the translator um, was translating what I was saying. And I was, um, didn't start out with a picture of a normal vagina. <laughs> Um, but I did, uh, I told them that it was very dangerous to do this surgery, that we had seen lots of women bleed to death, that they had infections, and they had obstructive labors, and I was trying to describe all of this. And every now and then the translator would say, are you sure you want to say that? 
sure you want me to say that? I'm like, say it, say it, say it. So then the element of surprise, you know, there's nothing like it, right? So um, I got to the part of uh, my conversation where I opened the picture and I said, this is what a woman's body should look like. And of course, he was horrified, he freaked, and he threw the book out of my hands and he started screaming at me. And I thought, okay, he definitely heard me. And um, the translator is like, we gotta go now, we have to leave now. And the soldiers are like getting all like uh, nervous. Um, and he's like, out, 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 shouting in Arabic to, to go, to leave. Um, so of course I, I uh, had left my message in the best Irish way I knew how, and I, I started heading out the door, thinking, darn it, I, sh I wish I could have told women about this. And right at the door, there were two women. Um, the room was full of men, listen to me, but here was two women, and they were looking at me through a habaya, this is called habaya, just like this, and um, I knew they could see me. Um, sometimes when we finally reach our goal of becoming midwives, we bless our hands, don't we? Um, let's keep that going. We have gifts in our hands. Um, sometimes when I would deliver the women in Saudi Arabia, um, we'd have difficult deliveries, you know, and they would kiss your hands, kiss your hands, and they would take off their wedding rings and give you their wedding rings. Um, I have a little collection of wedding rings, and it's a real honor. Uh, and they're saying, join my family, be my sister um, wife, you know? And sometimes the husband might be there and be like, yeah, yeah, I marry you, sure. <laughs> um, but um, I remember one in particular, it was a shoulder dystocia, big old baby, 11 pounder. And um, I was stuck, baby was stuck, mom was stuck. We were stuck in a moment, um, so dangerous. Um, and I was in the labor room on my own and there was, you know, no one around. Uh, we were uh, very short of midwives. It was during the, the war with Iraq. Um, most of our midwives had gone home. I was shouting, anybody, anybody, nobody. It was just me and her and this baby. And at the time, um, our, you know, way to get that big baby out when we had tried all the maneuvers that we had was to deliberately break the, the little clavicle bone. And I had to do that and I can still hear uh, the little bone breaking, but out popped that shoulder and out came baby. And um, she was grateful, you know, I just injured her baby and she was so grateful. And my hands, I felt so worried, how could I do that to the baby? But she kissed my hands and kissed my hands and, and she was so grateful, she's in my hands. Um, we used to deliver breaches, of course, breaches was like a, a normal uh, delivery for us. Um, and we learned hands off the breach. We learned to sit actually on our hands and watch the breach deliver itself. Uh, and we just would guide the baby out at the end. Um, hands off the perineum. Uh, sometimes we don't need to be in there. It's so hard, it's so tempting, especially in the hospital because most of the women have an epidural and sometimes they can't feel anything. And you're like, if you could just feel down here, if you feel me down here, push me out, push my fingers. Uh, but we were trying to come away from that. Let's place warm compresses, let's put mineral on, let's be kind as much as possible. So again, high touch, low tech. Um, um, and uh, warriors, uh, warriors comes up a lot. Um, you know, at the beginning, I told you about um, a doctor who said that women get injured. Uh, well, we do, and sometimes we come away from birth with scars. Um, we wear those scars as badges of honor. Um, there are warrior scars. Um, so I have one more slide I want to show you. But that's my podcast, if any of you want to hear stories. Um, I have lots of stories. Um, but here's two warriors I want you to meet. Um, the one on the left is myself with my own delivery. Um, I can remember the sweat and the breath and the smells and the feel. And I can remember, of course, that, that feeling of I got there, I made it. Um, and I know all of you who are mothers out there know that feeling. Um, that's where we want to bring our patients. 